As some of you know, my family comes from small towns in the Appalachian Mountains. We are mountain people, and we are proud Virginians. But I need to be sure you understand that we are Western Virginians, not West Virginians. <laughs> this is a crucial distinction, which is very important to my family. My parents fell in love with each other in Lynchburg, Virginia, and they moved into a trailer outside of town while my mother taught at the college and my father worked at the foundry. And they were living together in that trailer in Lynchburg, Virginia when, when I was born. Coincidentally, you may know Lynchburg is also where the architect of the moral majority and founder of Liberty University, Jerry Falwell, was born, which I hope you will not hold against us. We were both born in Lynchburg, but Jerry and I turned out to be two very different kind of pastors. Thank God for that. Growing up in the mountains of Virginia, my mother inherited certain ideas and sayings from her family. And one of the most important of these was about the Hylers. Whenever I came to the table with disheveled hair, I don't have hair now, but I did back then. Whenever I had wrinkled clothes or if I chewed with my mouth open, if I got food on my face, failed to clean my room, forgot to take a shower, burped at the dinner table, used lewd language or inappropriate grammar, which was a frequent thing, my mother would say the same thing to me that her mother said to her and her grandmother said to her down through the ages. Now, Ben, don't be a hyler. Get it together. Clean up your act. That's how a hyler behaves, and that's not who we are. We're not like the hylers. This was another important distinction for my family. We may be humble people from Western Virginia, but we are not West Virginians, and we are not hylers. We believed we had more couth and sophistication. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world is a hyler? You're not alone. I wondered about that my entire life, and so did my mother, in fact. We thought it was an expression that everybody used. I had ideas about its origins. I thought hylers might be a group of people who lived on hills near my ancestors, eking out a living just a few feet lower than where my family lived. And because we literally looked down on them, we created this nickname, hylers, hill people. Another idea was that hyler might be an abbreviation for hillbilly, someone who is from one of the remote regions of Appalachia. Turns out that neither was right but the first was closer. After years of cautioning each other not to be like the Hylers, we were stunned recently when a relative told us that the Hylers were a real family. My great-grandmother, it turns out, grew up in Clifton Forge, right next door to a family of pig farmers named the Hylers who allowed the pigs that they farmed to roam around inside their home. This behavior was so alarming to my ancestors that they constructed their entire identity as a family in contrast to it. And we used this poor family's name as a warning 
about good manners. And then we pass down this phrase, this idea, for four generations. We may not have known who we were, but we knew. We were not like the Hylers. Distinctions like this occur in every community. Jeanette Thomas Greenwood's fantastic book, Bittersweet Legacy, demonstrates that in Charlotte after the Civil War, black and white business owners and professionals began to describe themselves openly as the better classes. Greenwood contends that this term tells us a lot about the sense of moral and social superiority these men and women presumed they had. Greenwood also argues the concepts of class at that time were dynamic and relational, especially for the black better classes, whose livelihood depended on their relationship with their white counterparts and recognition that they received from them. Just as I inherited the idea of the Hylers and internalized a distinction between their family and mine, Many Charlotteans over the years inherited the idea of better classes and internalized these distinctions as well. The question, of course, is what did this do to us spiritually? Late feminist scholar Bell Hooks begins her book, Where We Stand, Class Matters, saying, nowadays it is fashionable to talk about race or gender. The uncool subject is class. It's a subject that makes us all tense, nervous, uncertain about where we stand. Many citizens of this nation, she says, myself included, are afraid to think or dialogue about class. Meanwhile, the ever-widening gap between rich and poor has already set the stage for ongoing and sustained class warfare. Hooks goes on to say that race and gender can be used as screens to deflect attention away from the harsh realities class politics exposes. Racism and sexism, she says, can be exploited in the interests of class power. Yet no one wants to talk about class. It's not sexy or cute. But class conflict is already racialized and gendered, creating division and separation among us. And to work for change, she says, we need to know where we stand. We need to know where we stand. Where do we stand as people of faith and good conscience on the subject of class? Well, we should stand with God, who is said to be no respecter of persons, and with Jesus, who, as it says in our text this morning from Acts, suffered, died, and rose from the grave to turn the world upside down. Many reduce the book of Acts to the story of the early church and the travelogue of Paul's missionary journeys, but Acts is a gospel, the second half of Luke. Luke and Acts represent a singular narrative and a grand vision, which is what makes the scripture we have today so strange and disturbing. Following scholar Phyllis Tribble, we might call this text we have a text of terror. Not just because of what happened to Jason. You may be surprised that I see other parts of this text as terror. Given how ordinary this seems to appear on the surface, not all texts of terror contain bloodshed. 
Some have incredibly small details, subtle words, slight turns of phrase that are lost in translation, which can make a seemingly innocent gospel narrative into a terrorizing story. And here's the shocking news for us Baptists. Not every word of scripture is holy. I'm aware of the oft-proof text from 2 Timothy 3, which states that all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching. However, not every word is inspired. The stories and overall message may be inspired, but not every word is God-breathed or life-giving. Some words in Scripture are uninspired, God-forsaken, and death-dealing. For instance, when Luke describes Paul and Silas's visits to Thessalonica and Berea, He becomes, for some reason, excessively excited by the fact that the rich and powerful are being converted to become followers of Jesus. In this story, surprisingly, Luke uses words like prominent, stature, high-born, and highly respected. Words that reflect stark economic distinctions, terms of derision and division. Now, what disciple would not be thrilled about prominent people joining the church? Isn't it good news always? Perhaps it can be, but not in the way that Luke made these distinctions here in Acts 17. As theologian Willie James Jennings shows us, Luke is sharpening a distinction he's operated with from the beginning of Acts. We could call this a class distinction, and that distinction is now doing strange and twisted work. Luke is not only unleashing a cultural insult inside cultural code, but he is deploying a dangerous optic, the perception of status and the status of perception. And this way of perceiving status is being mixed with conversion, which has always been an intoxicating and horrific mixture of perception. And Jennings goes on to claim, at this moment, Luke has lost the gospel, even as he tells of its opposition and acceptance. Luke's class distinctions participate in the very wickedness that he is describing to us. And this is no small matter, Jennings says, because from such a social optic grows the impatience to see people in their complexities and the justification to treat them like trash. That optic grows, Jennings says, inside Christianity, threatening the gospel from within and distorting Christianity's power of discernment. Amazing. From distinctions, small distinctions, grows the justification to treat people like trash. Luke's intertwining of class distinctions with conversion is particularly alarming to me because of all the gospel writers, Luke should have known better. Luke gave us the most class conscious of all the gospels. Even a quick survey of Luke provides a mountain of examples. The gospel of Luke has more about money, more about hoarding possessions, more warnings to the rich than all the other gospels. Luke's the only gospel where the Magnificat appears where Mary, where Mary Jesus' mother, proclaims God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly and filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Luke's the only gospel where the parable of the rich fool and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus appear. And Luke's the only gospel with the story of Zacchaeus, a wealthy tax collector, paying reparations for his crimes. Then in Acts, Luke also wrote 
All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And then two chapters later in Acts 4, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they had and owned was held in common. A passage that strikes fear in the heart of every Christian capitalist. In Luke's gospel, Jesus and the early church stand in solidarity with the poor, engage in class struggle, and strive to build a community where distinctions between classes are no longer determinative, a beloved community that literally turns the world upside down. So how in God's name did Luke go from writing the most equitable and egalitarian gospel to being enamored with prominent people with status, the high-born and the highly respected? In short, I think it is because he wanted to win. And in striving to win, he lost the gospel. Luke wasn't perfect. Neither was Paul and Silas or Jesus for that matter. Remember when Jesus called the Syrophoenician woman a dog? Luke's blind spots reveal our own. Just like our obsession with J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegy back in 2016 revealed our desires for easy answers after the election when Vance was just another politician using class and scapegoating the poor to gain political power. We all have blind spots. And it turns out that even the most equitable, egalitarian, and economically progressive people in the world can become intoxicated with the spirit of class distinctions. It's about how we think about people, how we treat people. Even the most radical among us have these blind spots when it comes to class, and that's because class is not just a social, political, and economic issue. Class is a spiritual issue. Franciscan priest Richard Rohr says that there are three obstacles to the spiritual life that have been the same in every age of history since Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and have remained constant from the desert mothers and fathers all the way to Thomas Merton, and those are power, prestige, and possessions. War claims that we can take nine-tenths of Jesus' teachings and clearly align it under one of these three categories, our attachments to power, prestige, and possessions. They are the biggest impediments to the spiritual life, and yet for some reason, much of Christian history has chosen not to see this and localized evil in other places than Jesus did. Class is the way the obstacles of prestige, power, and possessions manifest themselves in our lives today. Which means that for Richard Rohr and the entire mystical tradition, the greatest impediment to the spiritual life is class. So in the season of rebuilding community, we have an opportunity to decide what kind of community we want to be. We can decide for ourselves how class will operate and function among us. We can, if we choose, reject the idea that class is always the elephant in the room or the Bruno that no one talks about. Monsters become less scary when you bring them out of the dark. This is what our former senior minister, Carlisle Marnie, discovered when he came here to Charlotte. 
Marnie had spent his career as a firebrand from Texas, preaching against white supremacy all throughout the South. He had faced down the demons of systemic racial injustice head on. But in Charlotte, he was confronted, he said, by a different force that he was unprepared for, the force of class. And Marnie said this, the, the threat to the gospel in this city came from the assumptions of upper middle class life. A complacency, he said, which does not hear and is not interested in the cries of the politically powerless and the victims of injustice. And he felt that the church is divided most tragically not by denomination or politics, but by the prerogatives of social class and economic privilege. And then in 1959, this was one year after he arrived here in Charlotte, Marnie gave a lecture in which he characterized us church-going folks in Charlotte as, quote-unquote, established enough to be unchallenged, settled enough to need an earthquake to disturb us, old enough to begin to want some dignity and poise and senile stultification, pious enough to know no conviction of our sins, and complacent enough to feel no real responsibility anywhere. It was a humbling description of what class can do to our spirituality and our faith. But knowing his work was cut out for him, Marnie did not give up. He aimed to change that by proposing a new twist on an old egalitarian concept of the priesthood of believers, which he described as becoming priests to each other's elbows or priests to each other as our covenant states today, priests celebrating God's presence in community and in the world. We can't be, Marnie realized, we can't be priests to one another. We cannot be each other's priests if we're holding on to power and prestige and possessions, prominence, status, high birth, or high respectability, or if we treat people differently because of their class. Class distinctions cannot exist in a true priesthood of believers. Being enamored with class distinctions is the path that led to the conversion of Constantine. It led to empire religion and it led to pastors laying hands on corrupt politicians and presidents for generations. We can't become the community the Spirit is calling us to be if we are unwilling to look into our hearts and examine the ways that class has separated us from God and our neighbors. By not addressing it, we simply reinforce the structure of the world around us and replicate it inside the church we love. Any community that is unwilling to face their class remains trapped in the wilderness of temptation, haunted by the demonic forces of greed and power. Wrestling with classism is deep and necessary spiritual labor. That's why I don't see it as a coincidence that when Bell Hooks wrote her book on class, she was also reading noted spiritual author Richard Foster and Matthew 25 carefully. And thinking about her formation in the black church, she said, again and again, we were told in the black church that once we crossed the threshold of this holy place, sanctified by divine spirit, we were all one. As a church, she said, I did not, as a child growing up in this church, I did not know who the poor were among us. I did not understand that as a family of seven children living with one working class income, that when it came to material resources, we were poor. 
Sharing resources was commonplace in our world, a direct outcome of a belief in the necessity of claiming the poor as ourselves. Indeed, she says, sowing solidarity with the poor was essential spiritual work, a way to learn the true meaning of community and enact the sharing of resources that would necessarily dismantle hierarchy and difference among us. Solidarity with the poor is the only path, she says, that can lead our nation back to a vision of community that can challenge and eliminate violence and exploitation. It invites us to embrace an ethics of compassion and sharing that will renew a spirit of loving kindness and communion that can sustain and enable us to live in harmony with the whole world. Now that's a description of beloved community, a kind I'd love to be a part of. If we want to truly build that kind of community here and rebuild that kind of community here, we must seek to take on what Paul calls the mind of Christ, which in the words of Philippians 2 requires that we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than ourselves. This, of course, is not easy to do, but it's the only true spiritual path and the way of Jesus. Paul didn't say, you might notice, regard others as equal to yourselves. He said, regard others as better. Because there truly are no better classes of people. There are simply people with more money and power and people with less money and power. And Christians are supposed to treat people and everyone as a part of the better class regardless. Looking back, I come to realize my family and I, we were no better than the pig farmers who lived next door to my great-grandmother. We were not better than the Heilers, no matter how we thought we were. The distinctions we made between us and them were ridiculous and did nothing but distance us from God, our neighbors, and our truest selves. By dehumanizing them, we dehumanized ourselves. And we lost so much that we could have had if we were willing to live in solidarity with the Heilers. Pigs, for one thing, and all the good that comes from pigs. Friendship and wholeness, for another. Just imagine what the world, the church, could be if we stripped away all the class distinctions that divide us. We might find that when all the pretensions and prominence and prestige and status fall away, what we are left with is the truth of our humanity, the reality that we need each other, and a deep spiritual connection with all human beings and all living things on our planet. At the end of her book, Cast, Isabel Wilkerson offers us a vision of a whole new world. She states, in a world without castes, instead of false swagger over our tribe, family, and ascribed community, we would look upon all humanity with wonderment. In a world without caste, being male or female, light or dark, immigrant or native-born, would have no bearing of what, what anyone was capable of. In a world without class, she says, we would all be invested in the well-being of others and recognize we need each other more than we've ever been led to believe. In a world without castes, she says, we would see that when others suffer, the collective human body suffers and is set back as well. 
A world without caste, she says, would set everyone free. We are called to build this beloved community where class has no power, where it doesn't matter if you're prominent, prestigious, high-born, or highly respected in the world, and where everyone regards others as better than themselves. Because, as the mob complained to the authorities in Thessalonica, a community like that, that kind of community, has the ability to turn the whole world upside down. Amen.